Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast with your host, Kayla Osterhoff. As a health scientist, biohacker, and generally curious person, I'm always looking for new ways to optimize and integrate mind, body, and spiritual health. I created this podcast to explore the magic and science of human biology and expand your consciousness through learning. If you enjoy the episode that you're about to hear, please leave a review and share it with someone who can benefit from the information. Now let's get curious. Hi, my BioCurious friends. I hope this episode finds you happy and healthy during your self-quarantine. I'm actually recording this intro from Shakota, Oklahoma, where I've taken up temporary residence to take care of my grandpa, which you may know if you follow me on social media. And thank you so much to everyone who has sent me and my family well wishes. I really appreciate that more than you know. Um, Also, just an update for those who are asking. My grandpa is headed for heart surgery tomorrow, which will actually be Tuesday. And we are hoping that um, we'll be able to get him home later on this week if all goes well. I also wanted to just quickly update y'all on the Untapped Mind course, which I described on last week's episode. And many of you have already enrolled in, so that's so exciting. I've been getting so many awesome messages about how much y'all are enjoying the course. And so thank you so much to everyone who has sent your feedback. I can't wait to hear more about everybody's progress. And please um, keep the messages coming so that I can continue to tweak and add value to your learning process. Personally, I've been using the Untapped Mind daily method and tools to rewire my my brain for happiness and success during this difficult time. I want to make sure that I don't get stuck in a state of anxiety with all of this family stuff going on. And so this has been a really great tool for me as well. And whether you use Untapped Mind to do so or not, it's really important right now not to allow the COVID experience to rewire your brain into a permanent state of anxiety and fear. We can actually use this experience that we're having right now to our advantage to upgrade and optimize our brains. And if you're interested in learning how to do this, you can actually preview the Untapped Mind course for free. And I'll include um, the link in the show notes below. So now for this week's episode, we are finally taking a break from all of this COVID-19 stuff to talk about a topic that I am personally fascinated in, which is the therapeutic use of psychedelics or psychoactive drugs. And more specifically, today we are talking about ketamine therapy with Dr. Caitlin Kalstein, who is a naturopathic doctor that specializes in ketamine therapy specifically. 
Dr. Calcine may be familiar to y'all because she was previously the medical director of Dave Asprey's 40 Years of Zen. And on this episode, we discuss the therapeutic applications of psychedelics and how Dr. Calstein uses ketamine to help her clients overcome mental health challenges. I think you'll find this episode as fascinating as I did, and hopefully it's a nice distraction from COVID-19. So let's get into it. Dr. Caitlin Calstein. Thank you so much for joining me on the BioCurious podcast today. Um, as we were talking about a little bit before we started this conversation, we're in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, but we were both saying that this will be kind of a nice break from all of that and a discussion on something unrelated, but very important. And I think that the audience will be very interested to learn more about everything that you do. So thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm also excited to talk about something else and other than <laughs> coronavirus. I just did a podcast last night on it. Um, but you know, mm. ketamine and, and what we're going to talk about today might actually be surprisingly relevant for these times as people, you know, as we're socially isolating and mm. um, individuals with mental health stuff um it might it might be a hard time for them so yeah. i think this will be relevant even now mm, i couldn't agree with you more i think so um so before we dive in to all of this amazing work that you're doing out there with people with mental illness and depression and anxiety and other um other things in this realm using ketamine um, which I think is something a lot of people don't know a lot about. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you even got into this field of work to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so by training, I'm a licensed naturopathic doctor. I also um, studied traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm a licensed acupuncturist as well. And then I do have a certification in ketamine therapy. So those are kind of like my, my degrees. Um, I, as soon as I got out of school, I actually went to work for Dave Asprey, who um, I'm sure you know who that is. Um, Absolutely. The <laughs> yeah, the founder of Bulletproof and Upgrade Labs. And mm -hmm. um, he, you know, he calls himself the father of biohacking. So, <laughs> um, so, so I met Dave and we, he had this um, project that he was just starting as kind of a startup, it was kind of his passion project. It's called 40 Years of Zen, and it is an intensive neurofeedback center, um, a, a five-day program in Seattle, Washington. So I had just graduated, and I was into meditation and yoga since I was about 18 years old, and, and I had lived in India for a year, and I had traveled and done lots of silent retreats and was just very fascinated with the brain and the effects of meditation on the brain. Um, and so, of course, Dave and I hit it off, and I began working at 40 Years of Zen as their medical director and lead facilitator. Um, and then I met my husband. So Dave Asprey actually introduced me to my husband, who lives in L.A., so I came down here to L.A. and opened my private practice um, after a few years. So I was already learning so much about the brain and its effect on mental health. And of course, I'm not, you know, just a lab neuroscientist, I'm a doctor. And so I wanted to understand how we could make this clinically relevant for people 
um, like on the front lines and how we could actually change lives with what we knew about the brain. And that's how I got into ketamine therapy. That is so fascinating and will definitely resonate with my listeners who are largely biohackers. So they're very familiar with Dave and his work and, um, and especially the term. So it's really kind of full circle that you come from that camp and, and really have are kind of one of the founding leaders of this movement. And mm -hmm. I love that you started off kind of in your field of work by looking at the effects of meditation on the brain. That is something that I'm personally fascinated in and also studying in my PhD program currently. So that's just super cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what you offer there and, and what you do as far as both ketamine therapy and, um, and other services that you provide? Yeah, so I, I specialize in integrative mental health in general, and ketamine would kind of fall under that umbrella. But what I'm really passionate about is finding root cause of mental illness, so depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, um, and, and everything in between. There's a spectrum of mental health um, issues that people come in with. And often they have kind of how our medical system is set up is they go to their primary care doctor. Depression is one of the most common complaints of why someone would go to a doctor. Um, second to back pain <laughs> and fatigue. So, and of course, depression is wrapped up in all of that. Often people who are depressed will have other symptoms like pain, chronic pain or fatigue or uh, brain fog, sleep issues, weight gain, all sorts of stuff. So when I see these patients, what's happened is they have been to their doctor, they've spent seven to 10 minutes talking to their doctor, which is not long enough to really understand anyone's story. And then they have been prescribed an antidepressant. And either they'll take that antidepressant or they decide that they want to go a different route and then they come see me. Um, but I also get a lot of patients who have been on antidepressants and they worked initially and then they stopped working. And so they're looking for something else. So when someone comes into my office, we start um, at the very beginning. We look at all of, the, all of the organic causes of depression. I really like to roll that out first. So that could be anything from iron deficiency anemia, B12 deficiency, hormonal imbalances. You know, testosterone deficiency is a huge one. Um, we look at the gut. So if someone comes in with depression and they also have gut symptoms, um, we know that there's a ton of data showing that gut bacteria and pathogens can create inflammation in the gut, which travels to the brain and causes symptoms of depression. So I go through all of the systems head to toe and we, I talk to the patient, I spend 90 minutes with them. And we decide what to test because, of course, we have lots of different options. And we basically go through and we rule out anything organic, you know, biological going on in the body that could be causing their depression. So that's the first step that I do. Um, and so I do see, so you asked about my, my practice. I see um, patients in a very typical kind of clinic setting. And then um, we'll decide together whether or not ketamine therapy is appropriate for them. Mm. That's really cool. And I love that you're taking a really holistic approach. I couldn't agree with you more about the issues with going to a general practitioner for depression and even anxiety um, because there are not only other options that could be more effective, cheaper, 
more widely available and not have side effects, but there are also major, major side effects for these medications. So you really, it, it should be a very informed and thorough decision to decide to go on that sort of medication. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing that there was a huge study that came out last year um, in Europe looking, it was a survey study looking at patients who were on antidepressants. Over 90% of them said that their doctor did not go through the mm -hmm. potential side effects, the consequences, the long-term effects of taking their antidepressant. So what's oh. happening is they're not getting informed consent. So they go in and the doctor says, here, try this as if it is a completely benign you know, as if it's aspirin. And mm. six weeks later, they have no more desire for sex. Their sexual function is decreased. Their fatigue is worse. They can't sleep. They have gained 10 pounds. And now if they weren't depressed at first, now they are. Um, and we see this, we've become so cavalier in the United States with prescribing antidepressants that you'll even see people be put on an antidepressant for stress. Yeah, Like just general stress, they put them on an antidepressant. So there was a case study of an individual that this happened to. This is a bad story and I don't want to be negative, but this is what can happen. So antidepressants can also cause violent tendencies in people who have never been violent before. And in this one case study, this man was put on an antidepressant for stress and he actually ended up taking the life of his son because of a violent, he, violent tendency came over him. Yeah. So, this, this is, is actually it. really linked with a lot of, uh, a, and I know this is also very negative and we'll, we'll get off the negative points here, but um, <laughs> a lot of the mass shootings um, that have happened are linked to the medication that these folks are on that they've had a severe reaction to. Yes. And that's not, and again, if that was all explained to someone up front and they went into it knowing all of these things and knowing the risks. So what then would happen is once they notice, wow, I'm having violent thoughts and I've never had violent thoughts before, maybe then they would be more, um, more willing to reach out to their doctor and say, Hey, I don't think this is working. Um, but because mm -hmm. they don't know, they just move on as if nothing's wrong. They, a lot of people yeah. don't understand that their medications could be causing their symptoms. Mm. And, and that's what it's more about than it's about the informed consent. I'm not saying antidepressants yeah. have never helped anyone. They certainly, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there who would say it saved their life, but I think people should know what they're getting into. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think just even knowing what the other options are in case you want to try those things first, I, I feel like, you know, maybe 50% of the people would take those other options as their first option. And if it doesn't work, they would go on to the medication. But I think for a large portion of the people that would try the alternative options, they would find relief and potentially not risk these other symptoms that could be caused by the, the more um, traditional medications. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, it's about finding the cause so, and not doing harm. So we take an oath that we're not going to do harm to our patients. And I think that if we're, I do think that it's malpractice to give someone an antidepressant without checking for underlying um, issues first, like anemia and B12. There have been plenty of case reports of people who are um, very deficient in B12 for a variety of reasons, um, presenting with 
illness, mental illness, or even psychotic illness, and they're put on an antidepressant and it doesn't do anything because you haven't fixed the underlying problem. And then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So Mm -hmm. it's really not about vilifying these drugs or saying that drugs are bad. And, you know, because I'm a naturopathic doctor, that's, it's about looking at what works and good medicine and good medicine is actually fixing the problem instead of putting a bandaid over it. Right. And you do prescribe these types of medication to some portion of your patients, correct? I don't actually. You don't? I've, okay. No, I've made the decision not to because okay. it's, um, it's not, I would prefer to help people come off mm-hmm. <laughs> of yeah. medication and I don't want to get involved in managing medications for, for people. I, I do medications right. for other things and I can prescribe. I just choose not to prescribe. Okay. That makes sense. I think that there's a huge need and a whole industry on helping people get off of these depression medications. I know, for instance, my mom is taking both depression and anxiety meds, which the research that I've looked at, it's 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 usually harmful over time to be taking, especially the combo that she's taking. Um, and so she really does want to get off the medications, but then it's kind of like, people feel like they have a life sentence and they feel yes. like they're really stuck with these medications and there's no way they could ever get off now that they're on. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Like people yeah. who come in and they want to wean off of their medica- their current medications? Yeah, it can be challenging um, for a couple of reasons. One is that they have bought in a lot of times to the belief that they need to be on something forever because they've gone to a doctor, an expert, an authority, and they've said, look, your brain chemistry is off. Something's wrong with you. And in the, you know, in the immediate, that can be a relief. And, and one person, you know, someone can say, wow, at least I know why I feel like crap and it's not my fault and I didn't do anything wrong. It's just my brain chemistry. So that's actually, you know, for a lot of people, it makes them feel better to hear that. The problem is that sets them up believing that they need to take a pill for the rest of their life to feel normal. And what usually ends up happening is after a period of five or 10 years, they have to be switched onto a different um, antidepressant because the first one no longer works. And then you can have something um, that you actually, when you come off, you are worse than you were at baseline. So this is known in the medical literature that once someone comes off of the antidepressant, they're basically worse than they were when they first came in. Um, withdrawal itself can be excruciating um, if you've been on these medications for a period of time. So how antidepressants work is they actually change the global chemistry of the entire brain. They are not specific to one region. They change the neurotransmitter, um, the junction, and how many neurotransmitters are firing in the brain at one time. It downregulates serotonin receptors and you change the entire chemistry of the brain. That's how it works. That's why it takes time to work. And a lot of individuals, like greater than 70%, say that they, they don't even know how to feel positive feelings once they're on antidepressants because it doesn't just numb depressive feelings. It also numbs positive feelings. Um, so coming off can be tricky one definitely needs to work, in my opinion, with a team, either a therapist to help support them going through it or a doctor um, who is who's well-versed in how to come off of antidepressants. And 
for the most part, you should not go off of your antidepressant cold turkey. You should taper down depending on how long you've been on. It could take up to a year to taper. So it needs to be a slow taper. It needs to be managed by your doctor. And you can do other things as well, like diet, supplements, exercise, sleep, all of the other things that we know for a healthy lifestyle will help tremendously as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, also sounds very difficult. So I understand the adversity to going down that path because, you know, it could be a long process and a very burdensome process. But I, I think that even just knowing that that is an option that you can eventually get off of these medications, I think that that is very relieving for a lot of people. Yeah, you really do have to be ready. And, and I find that the people that I see are ready and they are, they're resolved and they know mm -hmm. that they really want to do this and they really don't want to be on this anymore. Mm -hmm. And having that mindset going into it, it is a game changer. So I definitely know patients who, you know, I've told to taper and they come back three weeks later and they're like, you know what, Dr. Kalstein, I just stopped. Mm. You know, and, I, and I'm cringing and I'm like, oh my gosh. And they're like, it was fine because they, they really had this mental resolve that they, they knew inherently. I mean, I've had patients tell me, I know what I'm taking every day is poison and I don't want to be taking it anymore. Mm. And when that's, when that's your framework, it's easy to just stop, you know? Yeah. And so it really depends on the person. I don't want to say that, that everyone has to taper. I think it, it's on an individual basis. Gotcha. But that everyone should work with a medical professional that can help support them through the process. Because like you said, it can be very jarring or you can experience a lot of negative side effects from the tapering itself. Yes, a lot of physical side effects, a lot of mental side effects. Um, you know, Kelly Brogan, who's a medical doctor and psychiatrist, um, she says that in her experience, watching individuals come off of antidepressants is worse than opioid withdrawal. Mm. which is obviously a very bold and extreme statement, but that's what she's noticed in her years of doing psychiatric medicine and helping patients come off. Um, yeah. So, so that again, back to informed consent, people just need to know this before they, um, before they start taking the medication. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit more about ketamine in your practice and the use with your patients and how that can really help with some of these um, medical disorders that people are experiencing. Yeah. So, you know, to, to just dovetail off of the antidepressants. So 99% of the antidepressants we have on the market work on the monoamine uh, neurotransmitters. So that's serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. What happened was about 30 years ago, we found Prozac. And uh, it's a long story, but started noticing that people on Prozac were, it was actually a drug developed for another purpose. They, their depression was getting better. And so we extrapolated from that, oh, it must be serotonin deficiency. There has never been a single study to prove that serotonin deficiency is the cause of depression. Not a single study. We've always mm -hmm. just assumed that because serotonin reuptake inhibitors uh, improve depression, by the way, in only 30% of people, um, that, that it's a serotonin deficiency. And so this kind of lie was propagated through, if anyone looks at the science, <laughs> it's not good science, um, but it's all we had. So 
my point to bring in ketamine is they're looking at these three neurotransmitters. There's a hundred neurotransmitters in the brain and we just got focused on these three. We became obsessed with them. We got blinders on to everything else and every new drug on the market in the last 30 years has just been um, reevaluating Prozac. It's been a better Prozac. It's been a newer Prozac. It's been one with less side effects, but then you add different side effects. <laughs> um, so it's just been trying to modulate Prozac. That's where we've been for 30 years. So ketamine actually works on a completely different neurotransmitter system. It works on the glutamate system. And glutamate is actually the most uh, prevalent neurotransmitter in the entire brain. So 80% of your brain has glutamate receptors. That's how important it is. And so one, you know, one theory is that ketamine works for depression because it works on this neurotransmitter. I think that if we fall into the trap of believing it's one neurotransmitter, we're going to end up down the same rabbit hole that we did with serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. I doubt that it's one neurotransmitter causing depression. But this also explains why so many antidepressants don't work for so many people. Maybe they don't have a serotonin issue. Maybe they have a glutamate issue. And we have not yet figured out how to discern who has what issue because we can't test neurotransmitters in the brain without doing brain surgery, essentially. Mm. Um, there's no really good test for neurotransmitters. So that's, that's kind of a theory of why ketamine is a truly new drug for depression is because it works in a completely different system. So saying that ketamine is new is actually not true. It's new to the public. Um, it's, it's new to psychiatrists, but actually we've been using ketamine since the 1960s. And there were even psychiatrists and doctors using it for depression as early as the 1970s. And what we think happened was in the 70s with, you know, the LSD boom, magic mushrooms, DMT, ayahuasca, you know, the 70s counterculture, um, ketamine actually was leaked from the labs onto the streets and it became a recreational drug, a street drug under the name of Special K, right? And so most people, um, a lot of people, when I say ketamine, they're like, oh my gosh, like the street drug, Special K? <laughs> like, yes, it's that, but we're not, <laughs> we're not using it in the, yes, it's a horse tranquilizer, yes, all these things, but the problem is it we, we definitely threw the baby out with the bathwater with ketamine. Mm. So as soon as ketamine became scheduled, you know, same with LSD, by the way, uh, we knew of medical benefits of psilocybin and LSD in the 70s, and we decided to make them controlled substances, schedule one, meaning they have no medical use, which mm. is completely not true. So, so what happened with ketamine was kind of the same thing. It became taboo. Um, it became a drug of abuse. And we stopped looking at it for scientific purposes. So that, that lasted for about 30 years until the late 1990s. By the way, during these 30 years, there were plenty of physicians on the front lines using ketamine for depression. Hmm. And part of it was that they were observing that patients, because ketamine was an anesthetic, so it puts you to sleep at high doses, they were observing that patients who would go under for general routine procedures like a tonsillectomy or an appendectomy or whatever it was, if they were given ketamine, they would wake up and as a side effect, their depression was better. And the doctors who were, you know, paying attention to this were astounded. At one dose of ketamine, 
treated this person's depression. And oftentimes it was someone who had maybe treatment resistant depression where everything else wasn't working. And so that's how we, you know, there's a long history of ketamine use for depression um, going back many, many years. And so it is new in the sense that we're now having control, randomized controlled trials showing its benefit. And so people are starting to pay attention more. That makes sense. Yeah, I know that there's a whole movement happening right now with <clears throat> psychoactive drugs. Yeah. Um, kind of this <laughs> underground culture, which is funny because, like you said, these were drugs used by medical doctors and then they became party drugs and then they became outlawed and now they're making their way back because we realized just as you said we threw the baby out with the bathwater, and these are really um showing to be very effective for especially like pstd and and um and a lot of like depression and anxiety disorders um so can you Talk, speak to um, some of the other psychoactive drugs and what you know about their use as well before we dive like further into ketamine mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, so I'm not, you know, I'm not using LSD or psilocybin or MDMA in practice because they're not yet available to, um, to prescribe uh, generally unless you're involved in the clinical trials. So, right. um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, it's MAPS, um, the founder is Rick Doblin. Um, that is the group that is really pioneering and spearheading this movement of getting psychedelic psychotherapy more accessible to psychiatrists and therapists. Um, the clinical trials are really unprecedented that we're seeing, especially with MDMA and psilocybin. I believe LSD is, is behind the game of, I think MDMA will be legalized first, probably, and then psilocybin. Mm -hmm. um, the work of Ronald Griffiths at um, Johns Hopkins, he has done amazing studies on, like Johns Hopkins, right? So <laughs> these are not, um, yeah, these are not like people, th these are uh, medical doctors with <laughs> extensive research history doing, I mean, it's incredible to hear these guys talk about yeah. these drugs. I'm like, wow, I did psilocybin when I was 15 to just like help my right. depression. And, and I think and that's now the Yale stigma. doctors are doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think they think that a lot of people think that even even the clinical research that it's being head up by like these hippies. No, <laughs> and it's not like, at all. It's an old white guy. I mean, yeah, yeah. And to hear him talk <laughs> about it is amazing. And it's just an incredible time that we live in that really what science should be is curious first and foremost. And what we've seen is that politics have taken have taken over and the money I mean just when you follow the money it's like we're only doing research studies on pharmaceuticals and things that people can make a ton of money off of and then there's a big group of people that want to say there's no clinical evidence for quote-unquote alternative stuff well that's just because a lot of this stuff hasn't been studied because we don't have the money for it who's gonna mm. funnel money into <laughs> psilocybin it's a mushroom it, it grows free yeah. You know, and so that's, that's been the issue, but you know, these, these people with very high integrity, very smart people are like, you know what, this can help people and we need to look at it. And so the clinical trials of MDMA are very, very close to being FDA approved. Um, it's incredibly safe and effective. I believe they just, they just released an expanded access so that more clinics can start to use it. Um, and it's especially useful in PTSD. So a lot of the clinical trials are focusing on vets, 
um, and other people with uh, trauma histories and using MDMA for that. So I can't wait. Um, we're, I'm definitely going to be on board as soon as we can start prescribing that and really excited to learn more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So my question about ketamine is this, is this something that you per, you dose your pac patients with when they come in for a session or is this something that you send them home with a prescription for? You can do both, but okay. what is the, the most common protocol and what I think is the most helpful is to have them do it in office with you. So I mm -hmm. do it as part of what we call like psychedelic psychotherapy, which is really where we're building a connection. So we're not just sending someone home with a medication. It's part of an entire experience. So someone will come in the office, they will take the medicine and they will have an experience and I'm there with them the entire time. So they feel supported, they feel safe, they feel like they can let go of control a little bit, um, and they're in a, they know that they're in a very safe setting. So I think that that's very important, especially patients who are psychedelic naive and maybe aren't so apt to do things like to try um, some of the other psychedelic drugs. Um, you know, people who have never done recreational drugs before, they really enjoy being able to come into the office and sit with someone and do it. So, mm. and I yeah. also feel like things that come up during that session, we can process through them in a way that's incredibly therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me personally, um, I am actually going to be doing a psilocybin experience obviously mm -hmm. off the record i won't say with who but um with with people who are highly trained clinicians um and and have psychology background and can really support me through mm -hmm. the process um because i have never done any sort of psychoactive drug at all mm -hmm. um you know i've smoked pot twice in my whole life and hated both times and so i've been very scared and averse to trying anything like this um, but I do experience some depression and some anxiety, um, especially like seasonal affect disorder is something mm -hmm. that I deal with. Um, and it's obviously runs in my family and my history. So I think it will be really helpful, but also knowing that there are options with clinicians where you can really, I would prefer to have my hand held. I know a lot of people would. Um, and so that's just awesome that you can do it in a really informed, supportive way. And also, you know, the way that people do these drugs in a party situation is a lot of times not really healthy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes they can have a bad experience. So I think it's really important to be with somebody who can support you and you can trust during an experience like this. Absolutely. And, you know, two words that are thrown around a lot in this community are set and setting. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly important. And I, I have heard of, of course, many people having quote unquote bad trips. Um, and a lot of times it's because they weren't around the right people. They weren't in the right setting. They didn't feel um, supported. They didn't feel safe or the set was wrong, which is their mindset going into it. You know, so maybe they were you know, we've been self-medicating since the dawn of time and a lot of people will self-medicate with cocaine when they're depressed or they'll self-medicate with ketamine when they're depressed. Um, and the mindset is more of an escapism rather than a healing. So when patients yeah. come into my office, they understand that they are actually there to take this medicine not to avoid feeling depressed, but to actually try to understand it a little mm -hmm. bit better and to heal. And, and that makes all the difference. 
Oh yeah. I think that that is so important and cannot be stressed enough with this, especially with this whole movement coming to the forefront. I think there's still a big culture of people who want to do it for the escapism and not necessarily for the self-awareness or to understand, you know, why they're experiencing depression or anxiety or whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, so I, I have a question about, so how do you, what is kind of like the decision-making process or intake process to decide which of your patients are appropriate for ketamine? And then are there some instances where you would say, you know, definitely not or not at this time? Yes, absolutely. Um, so there's actually not a lot of physical contraindications, meaning um, people being on different medications. Ketamine is actually one of the reasons why it's such an important drug is because it is so safe. So in the Vietnam War, back in the 70s, um, in 1970, they were actually using it as what they called the buddy drug. So they would give ketamine to soldiers so that soldiers could administer it to their buddies who had been injured on the battlefield. So even you know a layperson or a civilian can administer ketamine, it's that safe. So there's not a ton of contraindications when it comes to um, someone, oh, I have thyroid disease or I have IBD or I have um, any other type of physical ailment. There's not a ton of issue with that. It's very safe. The one physical condition that we monitor very carefully is blood pressure. So ketamine has a transient effect of raising blood pressure. So it might go up 20 or 30 points and then as soon as the ketamine is out of the system, the blood pressure returns to normal. So we just have to be careful in someone who already has hypertension. We make sure that the hypertension is well managed so they can be on drugs for blood pressure and that's fine. Um, if someone has unmanaged hypertension, we might send them to get that managed before they do a ketamine session. So that's kind of the physical. The, the mental um, disorders that might be a contraindication are things like schizophrenia, and potentially bipolar, although some clinicians still use ketamine for bipolar. The reason why is that ketamine is a stimulant. And so theoretically, and it has been shown in some case reports that if given to an individual with bipolar disorder, it could cause um, a stimulation of a manic episode. And so we just want to be cautious, and I really go case-by-case -case basis. Um, I would say absolutely no to um, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders. Mm. there's not a lot of research that it's helpful in personality disorders either. So I'd probably screen those out as well. Mm. That's interesting um, because I know a lot of personal family members that both have bipolar depression and anxiety or um, other mood disorders. And, you know, it's, I think it's really important to understand what cases these would be effective in so I wonder, do you think that the same um, contraindications that you look for for ketamine would be the same for all of the psychoactive drugs or is each one yes. kind of different? Okay. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And yes, I would probably say that it's especially, we even in doing ketamine therapy, we even screen out people who have a first degree relative with schizophrenia mm. um, just because there is a genetic component and, and you know, we just want to be extra cautious that we don't actually stimulate um, in any type of disorder that might be underlying. 
So we're we're just cautious and we take a case by case basis. And and then to go back to answer your question of who is a good candidate, um, patients with depression, Mm. um, anxiety, um, OCD. I'm treating a patient right now with alcoholism. It has been shown to be effective Mm. for alcoholism as well um, and other addictions. Um, Treatment resistant depression is probably the one that's been most studied. So an individual with treatment resistant depression is someone who has tried two antidepressants, two or more antidepressants, and they haven't worked. So we say that they've failed two trials of antidepressants. And, And those are the patients who were first studied and ketamine helped them. So that was huge because these patients who have no response at all to antidepressants, they're very hard to treat. Um, and usually we go to things like ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, or TMS, which mm-hmm. both have their side effects. And so um, ketamine is, if you're a person that has treatment-resistant depression, there is, you know, every reason to try ketamine. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So for somebody who you decide ketamine is a good, or they're a good candidate for ketamine yeah. therapy, um, how does that work exactly? Um, and then how do you determine like which of those will just do a session or 10 sessions or however many, like how do you determine how long the treatment will last and if the patient will take this medication at home on their own as well? Mm-hmm. So it really is case by case basis. It, it depends on um, the severity of depression. If they're having suicidal ideation, um, if their depression has been going on for a very long time, there's many different factors that would play into how aggressive I would be with a ketamine program. But my most commonly prescribed regimen is doing ketamine twice a week in the office for three weeks. After that session, usually that's enough to, it changes the brain. So we can talk also about how it it actually works. Two sessions, three times a week has been shown to be the most effective for maintaining those changes. Um, And then after that, just for ease of use, I may allow a patient or another to do a session at home as well as a maintenance dose. Mm, It is, we do have to be cautious because ketamine can be abused. Um, Mm. I will say I haven't seen it personally and I do screen out individuals who I feel are, you know, for lack of a better word, maybe drug seeking. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do, I am cautious about that as well, but my, my mentor, Phil Wolfson, who wrote the ketamine papers, he's a psychiatrist up in the Bay Area. He's been doing this for 30 years. He said that he's never had a patient become addicted mm. and he does at-home sessions. So um, really we have to think about the benefit and the risk. And if someone is severely depressed, they can't function, they have no joy in their life, um, we need to give them all that we can. And this right. is the best that we have right now. Yeah. So in, is there any case where somebody would be taking this on a daily basis? No, not in okay. my, not, not for this. Now there, yeah. there are cases of pain management specialists prescribing ketamine daily for pain, mm. for, for chronic pain. And that's kind of a different animal. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's less ketamine than we do in a session. So they might take 50 milligrams three times a day and we do about 300 milligrams in a session mm. or, okay. orally. So that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So what does a session look like? And then um, 
definitely let's get into how does it work how does it change your brain why does it why it, it's it seems to me and this is probably definitely the wrong language but it seems to me as like a shortcut to relief from depression and anxiety and these other um uh, like trauma related issues Totally. And, and what you hear patients say is that they, you know, a lot of these patients, of course, have been in therapy for a long time. And they say things like, I felt like it was, you know, five years of therapy in one session. Um, so it has a way of resetting the brain. A lot of depression and anxiety is memory. Like we, our brain gets used to, it's habitual. Our brain gets used to a depressive way of being because your brain really doesn't care if you're happy. It just wants to survive. And if depression at some point was adaptive for you, if it made sense for you to be depressed at one point or another in your life, your brain remembers that. And so ketamine helps to reset that memory and help reset you and your brain as well so that you can kind of write a new narrative, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, you know, this is why I'm, I'm studying neurofeedback, which is a totally different yeah. thing, um, but it can do some of some of exactly what you're talking about can kind of like retrain the brain, reshape the brain, create different and like stronger neural pathways um, and create like a different muscle memory pattern for a lack of better term. No, exactly. And, and that seems to be, you know, to get into to what ketamine does and how it works, that certainly seems to be a big um, a big piece of its success is that it's, a, it's allowing you, you know, it's creating neuroplasticity. So mm -hmm. ketamine increases BDNF, it decreases inflammatory cytokines in the brain, and it gives you an experience of pleasure, which a lot of people who are depressed don't even remember what that feels like. Mm. And so probably the most, you know, powerful thing that I hear when patients come out is I didn't know I could feel that way. Like I did not know I could feel mm. good they have literally no memory of what it's like, so they have no reference point. So when they do a ketamine session and they come out, they go, oh my, the brain, it's just, it's memory and it's learning. So the brain learns, oh, I can feel good. The brain learns what the felt sense is of feeling positive feelings. And I mean, surprisingly, that seems to be enough to help a lot of people break out of kind of the spell of depression. Mm, that's really interesting and kind of brings me to a question about, I know that you don't specifically do this, but the use of this to help people with opioid addiction, or, or yes. maybe you do, um, but they, their neurotransmitters and, and like where they, where they connect to the brain um, for folks who don't totally understand how all that works. Those um, receptor sites get, damaged and they can mm -hmm. no longer accept those neurotransmitters which make you feel you know a certain way happy or calm or you know zen people call it um but how is the ketamine able to connect with those transmitters or is it or um sorry receptors or mm -hmm. is it because it's working on different receptors like you mm -hmm. said the glutamate receptors yeah, we don't totally know, but we do know that ketamine does have opioid effects. It's weak. It's a weak opioid agonist, so that is probably why it's helping um, with the opioid crisis. And I know that there's a lot of physicians who are specifically focusing on how it can help. That's not my area of expertise, but ketamine is what we call a dirty or a 
promiscuous drug. <laughs> and mm. that, what, that means, <laughs> what that means is it has a ton of different effects. And so mm. we really, you know, the doctors and scientists don't like saying, I don't know, but that is really <laughs> the essence of science. We have to right. keep saying, I don't know. I want to know more. I want to know more. So we know it's a very strong glutamate antagonist. We know that it's a weak opioid agonist. It also affects acetylcholine receptors. It affects cannabinoid receptors, all sorts of different effects that it has in the brain. So we really don't know yet why it's helping for depression. Mm. It's also an analgesic. That's the opioid effect, right? So we give it for pain. We give it to put people to sleep. Um, so the answer is we don't know, but it... <laughs> My, my, my theory is that it's the opioid effect that ketamine has, and I also am concerned about people just becoming dependent on ketamine instead of opioid. But again, that's not my area, so I can't, you know, I shouldn't really <laughs> speak to it. Yeah, that was kind of my first thought is somebody who is dealing with depression and anxiety, and they may come to you for that but they may have in the past or currently be dealing with an opioid addiction. And so, yes. yeah, that could be a little hairy, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And they're all overlapped. So we know that yeah. patients in chronic pain tend to have higher rates of depression. We know yeah. patients with depression are more sensitive to pain. So there's a lot of really interesting, you know, neurobiology going on there. And mm. this is the tip of the iceberg. I think we do need to be careful not to, this is what humans do. You know, we need to be careful not to, say ketamine's it it's the end all be all and then we stop looking at other things as well yeah. so i think you know i i do mostly ketamine in my clinic and i have seen incredible results but it's not for everyone so you need to keep that in mind as well yeah that makes sense um so for a client that comes in and um, and they're having a ketamine session. Like, what does that look like? Is, is it, does it look like a typical therapy session? Like what kinds of, um, questions do you ask or, or is it more of just being there with them? Yeah. So let's get into it. I feel like you've asked me this and I keep not answering <laughs> this time. <laughs> I'm going to answer. I swear. Um, okay. So when someone comes in for a session, so just to put this into context, okay, when a patient is going in for a procedure and they get a ketamine drip to put them asleep, they're getting on average four to five milligrams per kilogram in the IV bag. What we do in the clinic is about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. So it's way less. So ketamine, of course, is a dissociative anesthetic. So it dissociates your prefrontal cortex from your thalamus. So all the sensory inputs coming in, you don't process. So what this means experientially is you kind of lose sense of your body. And for patients who are depressed, this can be a very pleasant experience. Um, so when you give a really high dose, they lose complete touch um, with their identity and their body and they are put to sleep. When you give the doses that we do in clinic, um, patients have an experience of being inside of their mind without all of the inputs of the external environment. So what, you know, when we're walking around right now, my eyes are open, I'm looking in my backyard, the majority of the input coming into my brain is just sensory information telling me where I am in time and space, telling me if I'm safe, if there are any threats nearby, um, my heart is beating and constantly sending information to my brain. 
my lungs are doing the same, my intestines are doing the same. So most of the energy that our brain is using on any given day is literally just keeping our body alive. So that's where most of the input is going. With ketamine, you turn off that input. Of course, your organs are still working, but you turn that input off so that it becomes very quiet in the mind. And you, what more esoteric philosophers will say about it is it puts you in touch with the unconscious. So you are able to, to see your life from a very different perspective because things become very quiet. I'm taking a short intermission from this episode to tell you about something that helps me create stellar podcast episodes like this one. On podcast interview days, I always take my creativity nootropic stack from a company called Formula. This has two different race tams, MCT oil, and alpha GPC, and none of the garbage fillers that some of the other nootropics have in them. This not only boosts my creative thinking, but it also helps me with word recall and focus. The other formula stack that I love is called Clarity, which I use on heavy research and writing days. Another big bonus about the formula stacks is that you can get them with or without caffeine, which is important for me because I do not want to give up my beloved coffee. Check them out through the link in the show notes and use BioCurious to snag yourself a little discount. Now back to the episode. Now, mm. even though I'm, I'm explaining this, it's very hard to understand unless you experience it. It, it is a very hard state to explain to people. Um, but what it ends up doing, this dissociation, is it puts you in touch and connects your brain more with your internal experience without you getting triggered. So what happens for a lot of people who have depression, a lot of people with depression have trauma. Now, they might not have shock trauma, you know, like say they were in a violent situation or they were in a car wreck or in war, you know, that's shock trauma. They may have emotional trauma. Most of us have emotional trauma. Um, they may have developmental trauma. And these things in therapy, they can be very difficult to work out because the second you start going in that direction and talking about trauma, you're re-triggered. Um, mm -hmm. And you can be re-traumatized and people don't want to go there. And their conscious mind is actually preventing them from going there because it doesn't want to feel the uncomfortable feelings. So with ketamine, that, is, that function is shut off and you see things from a place of neutrality. So it actually presents you with the opportunity to talk about your trauma to think about your trauma without having all of the rush of emotions that usually prevents you from looking at it. So during a session, though, I, I will lead in with some provoking questions, and then I will allow the individual to have an experience. And usually that will last 45 minutes to an hour. And during that time, they're mostly quiet. Um, they're having an internal moment with themselves. Sometimes they'll say one thing or another. They'll tell me what they're experiencing or they'll tell me if, they, if they're seeing anything. Sometimes it can be like a dream world where it feels like you're having dreams. Um, but for the most part, they're quiet. And then as they come out, slowly we start to, that's when we start to process and talk about what they experienced and what it was like and what they felt. And it's in that coming down or coming out moment that I really try to solidify for them um, what happened so that they can... 
um, ingrain it in their nervous system, if that makes sense. So I'll just reiterate to them, you felt light, you felt clear, you felt like your depression had lifted, like what did that feel like? And then when I get them to start talking about it, that's when the brain starts going, oh yeah, I can do this. Mm, That was a lot, but (laughs) no, that that's awesome. And it, it, um, it makes me feel more steadfast in my personal decision to do Mm -hmm. a, to first experiment with psilocybin is, you know, my whole motivation for this was to be able to disassociate or kind of disconnect temporarily from that prefrontal cortex, which is, uh, you know, the, the locus of control, you could call it. Um, mm-hmm. And my, a lot of my um, kind of, they're not severe, but things that you might say is are like neuroses or I, I know I don't have OCD disorder and I'm not really diagnosed with anything as far as like depression, anxiety, OCD or any of it, but I experience these things from time to time. And it all kind of stems from my need for control and feeling out of control in certain situations, which causes a lot of anxiety. So just to like imagine just being without needing to have control of the situation or myself or other Mm -hmm. people, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. And most people can't. I mean, we, that's how the brain works. And by the way, at some point, your need to be in control or your being in control was very useful for you. It was a survival adaptive technique. I mean, that's just how we're wired. And so it's not that, um, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's that that worked at some point in your life Mm -hmm. and then it might not be working now. We've all heard that, you know, it might not be serving you, (laughs) but it's really hard for our ego to swallow the pill that we are all conditioned in one Mm -hmm. way or another. We're all conditioned and we might actually be condition to be depressed. Depression could be a strategy for you. For me, my depression, which started at age 14, when I did my first psilocybin experience that totally changed my life. Mm. Um, again, self-medicating at that point, but yeah. at 14, my depression manifested and it was, it was a strategy for me because every time in my household growing up, every time I said I needed something or I wanted something, I either wasn't heard or it was blatantly taken away from me. And Mm -hmm. so I developed this thing was like, well, then I'm not going to need anything. I'm not going to want anything. And what is that? Like, if you don't need anything or don't want anything in life, how is that living? Yeah. (laughs) So I developed depression actually to prevent myself from being rejected. Like I'll just be depressed. I won't ask for anything. I won't Mm. want anything. I won't desire anything. And then that way I will save myself from it being taken from me. So we yeah. all have this, this conditioning one way or the other. And we basically use these medicines, whether it's psilocybin or ketamine or whatever, to wake someone up and say, it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. It's, and also because you are probably aware of that before you completed your, um, your experiences with either ketamine or any other psychoactive drug you were aware of this issue, just like I am fully aware of my need for control. And I actually know Mm -hmm. exactly where it stems from. It comes from, you know, growing up in an unstable household and having an unstable childhood. It's clear to me, but just knowing that is not enough to be able to change it. 
Yes, because, because those the brain, brain is so smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you're when you're smart, it makes it worse. Yeah, so <laughs> those smarter people are more depressed. Um, uh, but what happens is those two parts of the brain, going back to med, they don't talk to each other. Your prefrontal cortex and your limbic system have one connection between them. Meditation strengthens that connection, which is how individuals who meditate are able to just observe their emotions without getting carried away by them. Mm. That's part of it. But those two parts, you can know till the cows come home everything about why you are the way you are. And I talk a lot about this in my different platforms. People who've been in therapy, they know why they are. They know they had a narcissistic mother. They know their father abandoned them. They know the exact effects. You know, this is Freudian psychology, but it doesn't change how they feel. And that's what we have to start focusing on. Who cares if you know the cause, if you still feel like crap? Yeah. And I've done, you know, years of therapy, which has brought insights as to why I may be the way that I am. And then also in just my personal research and, and my education so far has told me like always pointing back, like, you know, this is the way that you are. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm that way, but like, what do I do about it? So yes. I'm glad that we're getting to that, that piece. Cause that piece is actually, I think more important than the why it's like what to do. People want to know what to do. Totally. And I think we get carried away with the why and we get obsessed with the why and that doesn't really serve us. It might be interesting. It might be, you know, it, but it's just the mind going, going, going. And like I said, you still feel the same way. And so we have to develop therapies. We've, we've not done well at this, but I think we're getting there that address the body issue. So like any type of somatic therapy tends to be very helpful for people um, and then ketamine and psilocybin and some other psychoactive drugs as well can help as well get you out of your head and actually into the part of the brain where the problem lives. You know, mm. it, because if you're thinking about the problem with the part of the brain that where the problem doesn't live, it's like, it just <laughs> doesn't, it does nothing. So yeah. you really have to address the limbic system, which is where all of this lives. And by the way, that's where it became that's where it was written. That's where your story mm. was written. And usually that is what happened to you between ages zero and one and seven. So mm. it, it, yes. it has this view of the world. And so we, we have to develop therapies that help change our perspective. And we have yet to date nothing that we've seen people report with psilocybin and, and ketamine and LSD yeah. to some extent, which is that one dose change their life forever. Like what other medication can you say that about? None and not no. really any other therapy either. Um, yeah. So uh, this brings up a lot of the people listening are familiar with Bruce Lipton's work, the biology of belief, epigenetics, how your thoughts control yes. your physiology and all of this thing. And this is all linked to what we're talking about. Um, the subconscious mind, which is programmed, like you said, between zero and seven or, you know, whatever the variation of that is. Um, mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to reprogram the subconscious mind just by like regular daily efforts. You really have to access that subconscious mind in in alternative ways, whether it be through meditation, whether it be through psychoactive drugs and something that I've been researching um, in school lately is, uh, is hypnosis, which can kind mm -hmm. of um, 
access that subconscious mind or that altered state of consciousness that we're talking about, which is where the reprogramming can happen. And I think neurofeedback is another excellent tool to access this um, ability to change the subconscious mind um, without, you know, years and years and years of therapy, which may or may not work in talk therapy. Um, so do you see any, any kind of overlap in these modalities? For instance, like hypnosis, ketamine, and, um, and neurofeedback. Like, could you stack these different approaches and get even a stronger outcome? Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I should talk to Asprey about just giving people ketamine. Yeah. <laughs> well, we That's talked what about I was that. thinking. <laughs> uh, while doing neurofeedback, while, yeah. you know... So, you know, what you, what you mentioned is incredibly important, which is that we can't change the unconscious mind with the conscious mind. We can't will it into what we want it to be right. um, with, with our will. And I think that's where a lot of people get there. Like, but I really, really want this. And, and think in your life, you guys listening, something that you consciously want, but you just can't. So like consciously, I want to lose five pounds. I've wanted to lose five pounds for six months that doesn't matter that I consciously want it. I can't do it because there's an <laughs> unconscious story going on yeah. that I need whatever it is to feel safe, to feel comfortable, to feel, and that runs the show. And so we have to, we have to really approach it with humility and say, okay, there's a part of me, a subconscious part, by the way, that is in direct communication constantly with your body. So I think we are incredibly disconnected from our bodies mm-hmm. in that, any type of somatic therapy is going to get you into that part of the brain. Mm. So I think somatic work is incredible, whether it's like a a moving meditation or Tai Chi, excuse me, or yoga, anything that connects awareness with the breath, with movement can help transform. um, I mean, PT, the studies with yoga and PTSD, yoga was shown to be more effective than antidepressants. Mm -hmm. We we know antidepressants don't do much for PTSD, but still, so we, we have this tendency to think that we have to use our conscious mind because we're so darn smart, but the <laughs> truth is there are some problems for which you have to go back to your animalistic instincts, which is, is to move. So yeah. when animals get fearful or they get under threat or they get scared, the first thing that they do when the threat is over is they shake. Mm. They, sh- they literally shake it off and then they go back to, they don't ruminate over what happened. Oh, that lion almost killed yep. me. I wonder if he doesn't <laughs> like me. I wonder if he like... <laughs> He rejected me and like, they don't, they shake it off and they move on. And so we don't have really, um, in our culture or society, we don't have good models for that. You know, we're very stiff in our movement. Mm -hmm. Um, We're told not to, you know, be spontaneous with our movement. So I think that any way you can get into your body and out of your head is probably good. Yeah. And, you know, even as children, if you think back, if you were like overly like, you know, dancing around, moving around, like. Yeah. You were told, stop doing that, stay yeah, calm, still. stay mm-hmm. still. And then if you were calm and still and quiet, you were told, oh, you're a very good girl, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's all been programmed. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all <laughs> so been it's not your fault. Everyone who's listening, me included, it's not our fault, you know? It, yeah, and the ego wants to think that it is. So you really do is, have yeah. to like, take some humility and take some breaths and be like, okay, I'm really just an animal. <laughs> yeah. I'm a really it's, smart animal. <laughs> Yeah, the human animal is the is such a hard one because, like you said, an, regular animals don't have beliefs that shape their yes. uh, behaviors, and 
that's all humans do is behave based on beliefs. And so it's, it's really interesting, but I think it's a fascinating time to be in the health arena, especially in brain health and health science, because we're finding out so many amazing things about the capability of the brain, um, good and bad, because, you know, we know now that the brain, no matter like how smart we are as a person, the brain is smarter and it's always looking for ways to find shortcuts and use different, use less resources and find like little well-worn paths that it can go down, which is why we get stuck in these bad behaviors. But now we're learning like we actually do have control over some of this stuff. And it's really exciting because these new therapies and new practices and a lot of things that don't have any side effects are coming out. And it's just like, it's amazing. The whole world is kind of expanding in this area. Yeah. And we can use our conscious mind for good. We use our conscious right. mind to say, okay, I'm going to go do the ketamine therapy. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go do the somatic. That decision is a decision made with the prefrontal cortex, mm. um, but it's to True. address the underlying stuff. So, it, you know, it's both like, we don't want to vilify any part of the brain. Yeah. Um, it, that it's both things. And the thing about, you know, people with depression specifically is that when you look at their brain under, you know, MRI or functional MRI, they have less connections than someone who's not depressed. Mm. So the brain of someone who is depressed is less neurons talking to each other, literally less connection. And I think that is the most beautiful metaphor for the work that we're doing with ketamine and then these psychedelic assisted psychotherapies is that it is also about the connection. And what ketamine does when you, there's, there's a study looking at an fMRI before and after ketamine and ketamine increases connections. So not only is the medicine through BDNF and some other factors, mm. not only does the medicine increase the, the number of neurons talking to each other, but when I'm sitting with the person, I'm creating an environment of connection mm. and they, they're connecting to themselves. They're connecting with me. And, you know, this is kind of off topic what we were talking about, but I think that that's also lacking. You know, we talk about somatic based yeah. stuff and then connection. And I just think that is the, craziest metaphor ever that is true that when we look at their brains they're less connected and mm. then we should say the the solution should be connection i love that i think that that is actually perfect um whether it be a metaphor or just fact <laughs> but yeah, it is a fact right <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it's both but it's that is really cool i i never thought of it that way um and i also don't think that we think of ourselves or our brains in that way. I don't think people realize that connection and relationships are really a huge, huge factor in overall health and wellness. In fact, um, there's been some research that have looked at people who are considered to be the happiest people or more, most mm -hmm. successful, joyful people. And the number one common factor is the quality of their relationships. Yes. Which is really cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, and there, there have been some like, it, it, you know, if you have at least one close friend, you're way less likely to develop mm. depression or anxiety in your lifetime. Um, and you know, it's the chicken or the egg. Are we in a society that's isolated and that's why people are depressed or are people depressed and then they're isolating and it's mm. probably both. Um, yeah. I know that I feel worse when I'm isolated 
And I also want to isolate when I'm feeling bad. So some of this is using that higher brain, the smart part of you to say, you know what? I'm depressed. I do not feel like socializing, but I'm going to do it because I know I'm going to feel better. And that doesn't have to be going to a party. That could be literally reaching out to your best friend and saying, hey, I need to, you know, hang out for three hours. (laughs) Yeah. It could be as simple as that. Yeah, I know that that's definitely the case for me. Um, You know, on a day that I am, I'm lucky to not experience it very often, but on a day when I'm feeling a little depressed and especially if it's kind of like gloomy outside, I know that if I either have connection with somebody, go have lunch with a girlfriend or even just like get out and go shopping in public, just being around people will kind of pull me out of it. But like you said, it's the last thing I want to do. And then my other tool is usually exercise will, I I don't want to do it when at the moment, but once I do, you know, 10 minutes in, I'm like, Oh, thank God I did because now I'm in a whole different headspace and I'm ready to take on the day. 100%. And we know, of course, that we've looked at exercise. It beats antidepressants in several studies. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is getting someone to exercise when they're depressed. So maybe people like you and I who have like mild to moderate depression, depending on circumstances, or maybe one day to the next, we don't feel as good. Um, we We can tell ourselves, just get out there and do it and you know you'll feel better. And I have to do that often to myself. Um, yeah. But, you know, when you you're living in another world. If you think that someone with severe depression comes in, you tell them to extra, which by the way, this happens all the time in the seven minute visits with their GP. The doctor says, um, practice stress reduction and exercise more. And the person looks at them like, are you freaking kidding? Like, do you have any idea what it's like to be depressed? Because when you're, when you're that depressed, um, exercise, are you kidding? Like you can barely get out of the house to make it to the doctor's appointment. Yeah. So the thing with these treatments like ketamine and psilocybin, they're not, end all be all in themselves, but they give you a break. They give you a timeout. And that period of time in those three weeks is when you can start implementing the things that you know are going to maintain your health, like Mm -hmm. exercise, cooking for yourself, socializing. It gives you a window of opportunity to make those changes that you've known for years you should make and you just can't seem to will yourself to do it. That's one of the biggest benefits of ketamine is not just the effect of the drug or the insights that you get but it actually gives you this window where you feel like you can actually start making changes. Mm, That's so cool. And you know, this is something that I'm personally interested in looking into for like continuing. um, After I do the initial psilocybin, I want to, you know, maintain and even grow further to help myself essentially. Um, So if, people like me or anyone out there is listening and they're like, Hey, I do think that I could benefit from this. How do you find a ketamine doctor that is providing this treatment that you can trust? Yeah, that's a tough one. We don't, we don't really have a database. Um, I know the maps people have um, a little bit more information on their website about getting involved in clinical trials, but that's probably not you know, most of your listeners um, probably wouldn't qualify for that. I, I don't know if they mm-hmm. would or not. Um, but people, you really just have to search. Like you have to do a Google search. That's what I have to do. I get people from all over the country saying, hey, I'm in Connecticut. I'm in Philly. I'm in Colorado. Do you know anyone? And I'm, I'm building a network of people, but there, there aren't a ton of ketamine therapists out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really, a lot of us are full and, you know, you really just have to do your own searching and research. 
um, I would absolutely call the facility, you know, and see if you can do like a free discovery call with the doctor to get a sense of if you have a connection with them. It's very important that you like mm-hmm. your doctor and you trust your doctor or your therapist because um, you're going to be in a vulnerable position with them and you want to make sure that you feel safe. You want to ask them what kind of protocol they do. So I'm biased, but a lot of a lot of doctors out there, there's a lot of anesthesiologists using ketamine for depression, um, even though they are not psychiatrists, they're not trained in mental health at all. They literally take the patient, they hook them up to an IV for 40 minutes and they leave the room. So mm. I don't like that model. I know that patients still have benefit with that because the ketamine does its thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think it's much more well-rounded to have an environment of healing more than yeah. kind of this medical environment. So I don't do IV drips. I do shots. So intramuscular shots and sublingual ketamine and it's an experience. Um, and I prefer that. So you, you want to ask when you're looking for a ketamine clinic, you know, do you guys do like infusions or do you do like ketamine assisted therapy or what's your style? So that's, mm. that's one way um, to determine whether or not it's a good fit for you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, And it's also good to know that there, you know, for a lot of other things, you can go online and find a database or there's like one overarching organization that kind of um, follows over all the practitioners. And so it's good to know that that doesn't exist currently besides potentially maps. Um, But that's really helpful for people searching like what to look for and what questions to ask and, um, and also, I know that you're probably completely full um, and you're based in California, but do you provide any sort of um, like remote online services or are you mostly in person in your office? Yeah, we have to, just the nature of ketamine therapy, obviously, is you have to be in person to do, to do right. that. Um, I do, you know, consults um, over telemedicine. Mm-hmm. but the person has to come in person. Um, I am in Los Angeles. I just moved clinic. So I actually have more openings now, which is Ooh. great. Um, but I'm also, I do remote visits for integrative mental health. So, cool. you know, at the, at the beginning, I talked about all the other things that we do even before we go to ketamine therapy. So I still do all of those, um, remotely. And it, yeah, I, I think that it's really so just to give your listeners a little bit more information they can download my free ketamine guide it's seven pages of the history and the use of ketamine so it's everything we talked about today and then some and then there's also the for the people that want to know more about the science and the research a really good resource is the ketamine research institute and that is um founded by phil wolfson who's been doing this for 30 years. So there is a lot of really great information out there for people who are interested. That's awesome. And we'll link all of this stuff in the show notes. Um, I know we're running over time already, but I'm just loving this conversation. I'm learning so much. Um, Do you have time for two questions that I like to ask all of my podcast guests? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So the first one is, I'm curious if you practice a specific morning routine to set yourself up for a successful day? And if so, what does that include? Yeah. So I, I'm flexible with myself. I don't, I'm the kind of person that does not like routine. Um, I prefer being able to get up and do what I feel. Um, but I will spend at least 30 minutes to an hour every morning doing something physical. So usually the first thing I do Mm. when I get up is drink a big glass of lemon water, um, to get all my 
to get at least half of my vitamin C in for the day and to rehydrate my brain quite literally. So there have been studies literally looking at glasses of water, improving people's test scores, um, whether or not you drink a glass of water mm. or you didn't. So your brain likes to be hydrated. Um, it's both, you know, in the rest of your body is mostly water too. So I get up first thing, drink a huge glass of water. And then as soon as I can, I get out in the sun. Um, I like to do bright light early in the morning. That's really good for patients who are depressed as well. Um, and I also just love being out in the fresh air. I'll usually take a few moments of being mindful, thinking about my day, thinking about what I'm going to do that day, how I want to walk through my day. So I'll actually visualize myself interacting with patients and being the best version of myself, if that makes sense, you know, like really showing up for people, being present and how I would like to move through my day. I do that. And then I'll do some type of movement. So I usually, if I don't have a lot of time, I'll do, you know, 50 squats and 10 burpees or something just with body weight to get my blood pumping because I find that that helps my brain turn on a ton. So I usually do something like that and then I'll have my coffee. Yeah, I'm that a sounds addict. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> I'm in yeah. the club. <laughs> uh, yeah. That actually sounds very similar to my morning routine. And I try to be a little, I'm trying now especially to be a little more um, structured to stay consistent with certain things. But mostly I just have like, these are my non-negotiables. There has to be I also start with a big glass of water. I don't typically have lemon in it it's just sitting next to my bed overnight. Um, and then sunshine is always in my morning as well. So I resonate with that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll do what I feel, you know, if I feel yeah. I'm, I'm really trying to get more into my body and listening to what my body wants. And some days it wants more yoga and deep breathing and some days it wants more high intensity. So I think just mm. listening to your body and, you know, and as women we cycle. And so at yep. different times you might not want to do high intensity and you want to do more kind of yin stuff. And um, I think getting, getting used to feeling what your body wants and not being so rigid. That's my, that's good for me. Mm, yeah. I love that. I think that's great advice for anyone. Um, so the final question, and this one can sometimes be a hard one is if you could just provide one piece of tangible information to the listeners that they could implement in their life right now to have the biggest overall impact on their health and wellness, what would that be? Oof. It's, that's me. I am split between sleep and meditation. Mm, sleep is, um, is a really common one. <laughs> yeah. Sleep is, sleep is tangible. I guess you could it, like prioritize your sleep. I think will change people's lives. Um, but I think learning to meditate, I think learning to mm. control one's thoughts and I don't mean control in a rigid way. I mean, to be able to observe yourself. And, um, to be able to observe where your motivation is coming from and why do you want to do the things that you do and what's your behavior and, um, not believing everything you think. And <laughs> I think that, I think that that could help learning to meditate could help, uh, the whole world. Um, and I think that we struggle to meditate. One of my theories is why people say they can't meditate. By the way, none of us can meditate. Like, you know, these people are like, I sat down and tried to do it and I couldn't do it. It's like, no shit. Nobody can do it. <laughs> um, it's about, it's about how many times you come back and go, Oh, there, my mind went there. My mind went, yep. and it is annoying at first. And, and I think that people, my theory is people stop doing it because you sit down and you realize how little control you have over your mind. And that mm. is terrifying. 
it's like, it's very unsettling to be like, I just want to sit here in silence and I can't. It's like, who's running the show here? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the more you stick with it, the easier it gets. And so I think if, if you can just dedicate, well, you know, I started, my teacher said, start with one minute of silence a day. That one minute is so damn hard for so many people, but that's mm. start there one minute and then do five minutes and then do 10 minutes and it builds and it invests in yourself. You know? Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I think meditation has been one of those things that has completely changed my life. And mostly for me, the benefit is that increased self-awareness really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you already mentioned some places where the listeners can connect with you or get more information, but if the listeners are interested in maybe connecting with you on social media or looking at your website, um, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, so I have both Instagram and my website, so they're both the same. It's at Dr. Calstein and drcalstein.com. And I imagine if you want to know how to spell that, um, it'll be in the show notes. Yes. Um, and then from there as well, I think within my Instagram is my free ketamine guide. And so you can, there's no obligation there. It's totally free. Um, you can download that and read more about it. And then there's information as well on my Instagram page on how to contact me if you're interested in booking sessions. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for this fascinating conversation and sharing your knowledge with us. I know that everyone will get so much from this episode. I hope so. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the BioCurious podcast. I wanted to thank you for being part of this BioCurious podcast community and also for providing feedback to the podcast episodes. I read and really value every single one of the reviews that y'all leave for us and I take the feedback to heart. If you haven't left us a review, please do so as it really is the best way to support this work and keep it going. Please also share the podcast with anyone that you think would benefit from this information. I also wanted to take a moment to thank the podcast sponsors who also help to sustain this work and they offset the costs associated with podcast production. I only invite brands that I personally use and trust and also brands that I personally know the owners who take pride in the quality of their products. Formula is a personalized nootropic brand that I have really come to love because of a couple things. Number one is they only inc include a few high quality ingredients in each of their formulas, usually three to four, and there is just no filler crap and there's not just a ton of ingredients in each one of the pills. And number two is they offer four different nootropic stacks, each with a specific purpose that, can, that really does work amazingly well. Um, my all-time faves, which you may have heard me talk about previously, are the Clarity and Creativity Stacks, which are just awesome. Another big bonus for me is that they offer their nootropics without any caffeine, or you can get it with caffeine. And that's really important for me because I love to have my coffee in the morning and also take my nootropic, and I just don't need the extra caffeine in my nootropic. 
The other one is Biostrap, which as y'all know is my all time favorite wearable. I talk about them all the time because they're amazing. This device is my ride or die in terms of personal data collection. As a health scientist, I don't like to make any health decisions without data. So my Biostrap has really just been a godsend to help me make informed decisions about my sleep and recovery interventions. You can find the links to both of these amazing companies and their products in the show notes below. And you can also find a special discount code just for the BioCurious listeners. So until next time, be well, my friends.